Welcome to episode 145 of Canberra Conversations with your host, Colin Campbell. And in today's conversation, I'm joined by Gary McGowan, also known as Skinny Gaz. Gary is a 27-year-old personal trainer, the co-owner of Triage Methods, and a current medical student. With various different qualifications in personal training, nutrition, strength conditioning, as well as BSc in physiotherapy, Gary is interested in how individuals can live their lives in the most healthful way possible. Beyond exercise and nutrition and the behaviours we typically associate with health, he also has a keen interest in philosophy and psychology as it relates to the pursuit of a good life. And that's what I've captioned today's episode, how to live an anti-fragile and good life. And that's certainly something you're about to hear in the next 90 minutes or so. Given Gary wears a number of different hats, I ask him about his identity and how he views himself. And this is of particular interest given his recent hamstring industry, which impacted his ability to train, which of course forms a part of his identity. Expect to learn much more about the different aspects of identity, how your mindset, self-talk, upbringing and sources we consume can shape how we view ourselves. And I also mentioned Gary has a keen interest in philosophy and psychology, which leads to us discussing what an anti-fragile and good life looks like. Within this, you'll hear about coaching, Nassim Taleb, Jordan Peterson, resilience, being happy, and even jump style dance. Lastly, as Gary is such a busy individual, we touch on productivity, work ethic, morals, self-improvement, as well as fat phobic behaviors, fit shaming, and even virtue signaling. Today's podcast is sponsored and supported by Crypto Glasgow. Founders Don and Deck have been on the podcast three times now and are three of the most played episodes in the archive because we're talking about such an exciting topic, which is crypto. It's badly misunderstood, but when it comes to investing and trading, the Crypto Glasgow team have got you covered when it comes to a calm and steadfast strategy. They have over 20 years combined investing experience across the team to support you with what can be a pretty confusing market, particularly when the sentiment at the time of recording is pretty negative. No matter whether you're somebody like me who likes to dollar cost average and pick coins, have a use case that he believes in for the future, or you're somebody who wants to trade and make quick profit, Crypto Glasgow have got you covered with a range of different services. I'm a member of the CG Pro Discord for just 29 Oh, $29.99 per month. Apologies. It combines everything you need from investing, trading, and education to go from beginner to pro. Uh, within that, there's a lot of different information I consume on a daily basis or when I'm looking to make uh, a new investment into a new coin. If you want to go beyond that, you can also look at their consultations or their startup or level up guides, which are available as ebooks. To get involved, you can visit www.ccgla.co.uk and I'll be linked in the show notes. The second sponsor and support of today's podcast is also previous podcast guest, Mike Samuels. Mike is a copywriter who's been responsible for over $170 million in online sales for his clients and now teaches others to become what he calls coffee shop copywriters. Copywriting has become a huge value skill set in the modern world and he's personally guided over 300 people to the point where they're now earning their living as highly paid, highly respected copywriters earning up to £350 per hour and getting paid multiple times for one piece of copywriting work. Importantly, Mike is very clear that copywriting is not an easy way to riches. Rather, it's a skill that requires practice. However, he has simplified that process and truly believes that anyone that loves writing, likes creating content, and has the drive to earn their living as a writer can do exactly that. He's put together a selection of free templates to get you started, along with access to a free masterclass, which shows you how to use these templates, but also how to approach and sign up your first high paying client. If this is something that interests you and you're looking to build up an opportunity to become a full-time copywriter or just build it as a side income, then you can get involved at www.freedomkickstarter.com forward slash 500 templates. That'll be linked in the show notes and you can download your templates and sign up for the free masterclass today. 
before we dive into this episode, as always, thank you very much for your support. I have no doubt you're going to enjoy this one, and I would love to hear your feedback at called.cambro on Instagram. Please tag me and share it with a couple of friends as we continue to grow our audience here at Cambro Conversations. Who knew that you guys loved robots and AI so much? Because the Eric episode last week has gone absolutely wild in terms of downloads. So thank you, as always, for your support. The music's going to play, and you're going to hear from Gary McGowan and myself. Gary McGowan, welcome to Camera Conversations. Thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me. It's my pleasure. I was uh, swithering between introducing you as Gary McGowan or Skinny Gaz. What What do you think you're going to identify as in the in the future? Is Skinny Gaz here to stay? Gary is fine. You know, I I do I do, I do get a kick out of it when people say Skinny Gaz, all right, because it's it's just it's funny because it's it's sort of satire, sort of serious, but yeah, I get a kick out of it. But Gary is fine for today. Yeah, I think it's funny when you've got like such a strong online brand, particularly in a local area. And like mm. when you're out and about, somebody's like, oh, that's skinny guys rather than that's yeah, Gary. Yeah. Like it, it must feel quite good from a marketing perspective, but funny from a, a human perspective. Yeah, it is funny from a human perspective because I never think of myself as being someone who like has a lot of followers. But because like you say, the place I'm from and, you know, the areas I frequent are quite small areas. So you often do get people who are like, oh, are you that guy, that skinny guy? Are you the fitness guy? And it's like, oh, that's that's very strange. You know, my girlfriend always gets quite uncomfortable about it because it, it feels in that moment like you're way more famous than you are. It's just that you're in a very small pond. But uh, yeah, it's it's still nice. It's massively amplified. And sometimes you find these people aren't necessarily people that like follow you really closely, but they've seen your stuff at some point. Yeah. And particularly if it's like a, a venue where there's alcohol being consumed, they're a little bit braver to come across and ask like, oh, is that who you are? And you're like, like, yeah, like no big deal. Like let's, let's yeah. have a chat. It's a funny one. I, I guess you mentioned there the fitness guy. And one of the things that's happened to you recently is you've had a hamstring injury mm-hmm. and you spoke around how that's impacted your identity. Mm-hmm. Given that you wear so many different hats, Gary, like how would you describe your identity? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love, I love this question and this topic more broadly because I think that um, identity is actually really a really important part for both an individual and broad on a broader societal level where do people derive their identity i think it's really important you see this uh, obviously playing out culturally in terms of things like the culture wars and identity politics you know people allowing their beliefs to be very much attached to a sense of identity and then that n- inhibiting them from being more rational in the way that they think that's just one very broad example of why identity is so important And I spoke about this a little bit recently on my Instagram, where I said that one of the protective factors for me not deteriorating psychologically in response to my injury, the surgery, and subsequently being immobilized was the fact that my identity doesn't just rest on being a fit person. It's definitely a big part. Like I definitely do feel myself that I, I like to think of myself as being a fit person. I would like others to see me as being a fit person. It's definitely important. But what also comes into that is another probably core one is that I think of myself as being someone who works hard and gives 100%. Like that's another big core part of my identity. And the good thing about that one 
is that that's actually not, it's not specific, it's general. So it means that whether it's fitness or my own education or my work or whatever it happens to be, that identity, the the things that contribute to that component of my identity are a bit more malleable, malleable, a bit more flexible. So whether it's in the presence of illness or injury or anything else, it's always going to be there. So that for me is definitely a big component to my identity. I think that probably is pretty clear if you follow me, like that's one of my big messages for me personally. It can go too far at times, but I'm a big fan of hard work, give a hundred percent regardless of what you're doing. So that's a big part of it. Um, the, fact that it's applied in different, the fact that you're able to apply it in different areas of your life as well is that's what spoke to me when you were describing that, yes, I can't train in the same way that Gary traditionally does and, and he's known for, but that's not the only thing that defines me and the only thing that I find value myself in. In fact, I'm going to apply this hard work and the effort that I've maybe got, the kind of energy that I've freed up from training into business, studies, and all the different other facets of your life, relationships even, that you're able to turn up fuller because of the freed up capacity from the, the training layoff. 100%. And, you know, like you say, it did give me extra energy that I was able to allocate to different areas. And that was something that was definitely of benefit. And yeah, I think that in general, people should try to have some components of their identity that are non-specific and that don't hold them down too much because you, you never know what's going to happen in life, whether it be, you know, a financial catastrophe where you lose all your money or you have an injury and you can't train anymore. Or I, I even know some people locally, friends of mine who have had, you know, severe injuries that left them paralyzed and how you cope with that is how you cope with any significant traumatic event or catastrophe like that is very much dependent on where that sense of identity, that sense of meaning, that sense of purpose comes from. And if you can, if your identity is attached to something non-specific, I think that's very sustaining and it's something you can carry over somewhere else. Because when I think about all of the lessons that I've learned during my time training in the gym and the skills I've gained from that, I all, it almost feels to me internally, like they're directly the exact same skills that I apply to studying, for example, because it was going to the gym that actually made me start studying and be a, a slightly more academic person because I was like, oh, if you can have some discipline, get organized, have a plan and follow through, you get results in the gym. And guess what? That also works for your exams and these other things. Um, so that that's basically what my whole life is built around. And as a result, maybe my cognition will decline and my brain mightn't work as well. That's fine. I'll go to the gym and maybe I'll get injured and uh, I'll go to the books, but hopefully not both. Yeah, exactly that. And it's a, it's a, it's a short-term thing for you, like you said. And equally, one of the people that helped introduce us was Jack Kavanaugh, who I, I guess you were maybe hinting at towards yeah, theirs. I didn't even I didn't even put that together, actually, not when I was just talking about that, because he's someone that came to mind. I totally forgot that there was a link there. Yeah, Jack, Jack's well been on the tomorrow. podcast, and he has an incredible way of framing the tragic incident that he had. And now he, now he lives this fulfilled aligned life yes. that is not reliant on the fact that he was this young like athletic guy when he was younger as well which i think there's a lot to be learned from and equally yes. sometimes somebody at that end of the challenge of perspective puts what maybe you've experienced which albeit is a serious hamstring injury mm. in the in the cold light of day it's not as challenging as potentially what it could have been a hundred percent and and he's a fantastic example he has 
an unbelievable attitude, big inspiration for me. He, I think early on in the kind of pandemic times, I think he interviewed me on his podcast. Um, we had a chat and, you know, he, he's, yeah, he's just an outstanding guy. And Ian O'Connell as well as another guy that some people will be familiar with in Ireland. He's um, from Killarney, my hometown, and I know him personally. Again, great guy, pretty much the exact same case as uh, Jack Kavanagh. And and yeah, the, you know, when, when I injured my my hamstring, I think I was initially talking to, to Ian about it. Um, or, you know, he said something like, maybe get well soon or sorry to see you like this or whatever. I'm like dude how can i complain you know it can always it can always be worse and i think those guys maintaining their attitude like like they do is is very inspiring yeah i think you can take a lot from these individuals and equally people like yourself who perhaps like rupturing the hamstring might be one of your followers or somebody who's consuming your content worst fear but to see you go through it it's actually quite like quite helpful for them to see how somebody deals under that sort of situation as well i was actually very surprised at at how many responses like that that i had gotten uh, because see i've never had a, a severe injury before to be honest and you know i i know th like theoretically and i know from working with other people because i help people through these situations how psychologically challenging it can be um and then there was there was a lot of you know feedback that people were getting benefit from me talking about my experience or maybe they were impressed that i wasn't that affected psychologically and that kind of caused me to question you know like like what what was it about me myself that i didn't get too upset by this and again it was going back to those things that we that we discussed so i i think to be fair as well like while i say that you shouldn't attach your identity just to one thing i do think as well that in some cases you might have to because the, like the the greater the greater the thing that you're aiming at the greater risk you have to accept as well like for example if you're a professional footballer playing with you know Liverpool Manchester United whoever you pour your whole existence into that from when you're a kid and everything you've worked towards is there and of course that's going to make up a major component of your identity there's huge potential reward in that you're getting paid whatever half a million a week um but there's also huge potential risk if you get a severe injury now you're left with nothing and no education no skills etc so um I don't want to just say that everyone should be wear all these different hats it's totally acceptable to specialize just note that there's some risk there as well equally your identity is quite value based in terms of hard work but it's applied across multiple yes, different yes, vectors exactly. what role do you think your your family and your upbringing played in your ability to have perspective and experience with your identity because you mentioned professional football there and i know that's something mm. that was kind of close to your um your family story as well yeah, my my family have definitely been incredibly influential and and I always credit them for, you know, anything I've achieved because my dad was, you know, very much had that attitude of being a hard worker when he was a kid because as you alluded to, he um became a prof professional footballer himself and and played with Leicester City, but due to you know being falsely accused and charged with murder in the in northern ireland during the 70s late 70s early 80s um his career was basically stripped from him uh, and there, that that's a, a whole three podcast discussion in itself but basically that that led to him having to go on the run um you know flee his country flee his career not be able to pursue his career as a professional footballer played alongside you know Gary Lineker same team and now every day 
you know, he's watching match of the day, Sky Sports, whatever, and Gary Lineker is there across the TV in front of him, knowing that they were on par. And that's a very difficult thing for him. And, and I think that when I reflect on his story, the fact that he put in so much work for one specific purpose, and then it was stripped away from him in that manner, in a way, I almost feel like it feels like a bit of a duty to try to carry on his legacy or or pick up what he didn't get the opportunity to do, um, even if it's not necessarily in the same domain of of soccer in this case. But there's um, massive nobility in that, isn't there, Gary? Like a nobility in that cause to like, right, I'm going to carry on the McGowan legacy yeah. in terms of living a, an intentional life in the way that we should do. A hundred percent. And and I like that that drives me more than anything internal is when I, cause he he's, he's quite an emotional guy, my dad, and he will get, you know, really emotional when he, you know, thinks about me like training to be a doctor or when I graduated from physio, just these types of things that are very meaningful to parents. Like he loves that and he relishes any opportunity to, to talk about what I'm doing and those types of things without rubbing it in people's faces. But seeing that pride that he has in me is, is just, it's one of the biggest motivating factors in my it life. It must be a huge reward. Like you're you're living the life that he has enabled you to live by, yes, uh, having a stable relationship and and, and yeah. producing producing children and giving you the foundation to go and study at school and apply yourself at at, at Cork or Limerick. I think you were mm -hmm. you, you were studying at. So no, I, I really really like that, and I actually know he gifted you Man's Search for Meaning, which is a a book that I've referenced many times in the podcast in the last I uh, few episodes. Oh, did you give it to him? Yeah, I gave it to him. Oh, um, talk to me about what you learned from that book, Gary. Um, I'm trying. I'm trying to think about where, where did I did I say that online that I gave it to him? Did I give it to him? Maybe I did. Yeah. Um, good spot. Good. Rem I actually forgot I had given it to him, but no, he definitely didn't give it to I me. I go deep in my research, Gary. Don't you worry. <laughs> my man, <I'm> scared now. <laughs> but no. Um, yeah, I gave that book to him uh, a few years ago because it was. It's obviously something that, like, I suppose for context, like. The book is written by Viktor Frankl. Um, it's about his time and I guess his, his, his psychological journey and maybe his, some of his psychological observations during his time in, was he in Auschwitz or was he in, yeah, he, worked, he was in Auschwitz. Um, so in Auschwitz, obviously during, during the um, Holocaust. And I think that book was, was the reason I, I gifted it to him was because basically what Viktor Frankl comes out you could summarize the conclusion as being that you can find meaning in these horrible situations and that that can be sustaining um, and he's my dad has obviously had a very very hard life um, and that continues to affect him so I think that you know having that perspective can be very useful and that's kind of what I took from that book and, and what I've took taken from some other books that I've read as well about similar atrocious situations is that <clears throat> no matter how hard things get there's always something that people can cling to and having something that maybe makes you feel useful and that you can contribute to i think that that can pick you up even in the darkest of times and and that's kind of what i recall from that book with with the knowledge that it's been i don't know four or five years since i read it probably yeah, I've I've read that book and I've read the similar book, uh, The Forgotten Highlander by Alistair Urquhart, which is a very similar. What's that called? The Forgotten Highlander. Oh, uh, yeah, I've been recommended that, but I haven't read it. Yeah, it's right up your street, Gary. Like, like after after this, I'll I'll, uh, I'll I'll give you more of a review of it uh, once nice. we finish recording. But yeah, it's uh, it it's superb, and again, it gives you that perspective of 
how much humans can struggle and put up with and move forward and not be broken. Mm-hmm. And if we can apply that to the relative comforts of the Western world that we experience now and the relative hardship, which we find maybe super challenging, then we can be all the better for it. And I guess when it comes to your identity, one of the interesting things that you shared online was that you actively try not to just be the fitness guy. And one of the ways that you do that is through not necessarily always talking about it. Yeah. How do you, how, how do you manage that? Particularly if somebody comes over to you and says, Oh, uh, Gary, like, uh, are you, are you the guy that does triage method or are you the guy that talks about, um, fitness online? Like, how do you try and move the conversation away so that people aren't always necessarily talking to you about reps? Well, any, and anytime and anyone talks, to, anytime anyone talks to me and, and I think this is just kind of, I guess, good etiquette, generally good practice. Um, I always try to turn the conversation on them. Um, and sometimes people are reluctant because they would like want to know more if they've been following you and stuff. But like, I'll almost always try to turn around and say, you know, you know, tell me about what, tell me about your work and then I'll find, they'll give me a response and I might know that much about it, but you know, I'll, I'll find something interesting. I'm like, Oh, that that's interesting. Like, tell me more about this, that, and the other, whatever people love that. I think that's a good, um, skill to, to be aware of, um, whether it's in, um, male female dynamics or just normal um, conversations that you have every day like be interested in other people like don't ever think that you can't learn stuff from other people regardless of how menial you might think their life or job is um, I, I i find that to be a valuable way of conversing and, and people generally appreciate you more and it also it sometimes it can be kind of uncomfortable if if someone has followed you let's say and again i don't have that many followers but if someone has followed you and they put you on this pedestal and they think of you as just being the fitness person i find that if i'm conversing with them then and i turn it around on them and get real interested in areas of their life suddenly we're kind of on par now and we can have a converse an, an equal conversation whether they, even if they are asking me about fitness it just feels a bit different um so that's one of the things i do i often try to take the conversation in the direction of the other person but also i suppose more broadly just uh, to talk about other things with people and to not, I, I try not to um, play the expert in person that much. So like if there's a conversation, let's say I'm with my girlfriend and a few of her friends or her family and a conversation comes up about a health topic or a training topic or something, I'm I'm not jumping in and sharing all of my knowledge with them. You know, I might say, I might wait until someone asks me and then you know, share a couple of points. And if they want me to elaborate, I will. But I try not to make it so that the if, if people were looking around the table or they were looking from a third person view, they say, that's the fitness guy. Um, so obviously you want to be helpful and I'm telling the truth and, and answering their questions. But I, I rarely try to force it on people because I that's not how I want them to look at me either. So there are a few- I really like that approach. Here. Yeah. That, that particular approach I think is very helpful because it means that people are maybe soliciting your advice. Yes, exactly. And equally, sometimes when somebody asks for something, it's because they, they they actually truly want it. Whereas I suppose if it's just a general conversation, you're like, actually, I know about that and I can help. And which of course you can, but you become quite a dominant force within conversations in that regard. And it's, it's, it's really, really interesting for me that you mentioned that you sometimes try and turn the conversation around so the other individual who perhaps has approached you or wants to talk to you about fitness in particular, you turn it around on them because I had a conversation specialist on the podcast, a lady called Celeste Headley, and she was telling me that the only conversation that people, or well, there's two really, arguments is one, but the only other conversation that people leave with less dopamine and less serotonin is when they feel like they've been lectured. 
So yeah. when we when we sit within a lecture hall, we typically don't leave with high levels of serotonin and dopamine because we've just been spoken at the whole time and it's not like interactive. Whereas when you've opened it up and you're like, well, tell me a bit more about your situation. And then you feel like there's a, a bond between the two of you because you've started to share details about each other that aren't just a case of them saying, oh, Gary, like, tell me a bit about this. And then you just go bang and then absolutely mic drop them on a, on with all the knowledge that you, of course, can unlock. But you instead bring them into things. And that's probably why you have albeit what you're saying is a, a smaller following, but you've got a very deep connected following. Yeah, I, I do. I do think that's true. I think that um, like when I post, I almost always see the same people liking the same little comment thing. I can predict who's going to respond to my stories and, and those types of things because they're like, I, I like having engaging followers. I like being able to recognize names. I like when someone messages me. I, I remember that they messaged me before. All those things are really important to me, um, both in the real world and online. And I think that... um what you just said there again totally uh, what was it what was i going to say oh yes very interesting in terms of the flipping the conversation around on someone because i think that this is something that we do extremely poorly in the fitness industry when it comes to maybe like debunking culture you know like evidence-based fitness professionals or nutrition professionals that want to get their point across they make the other person feel stupid um, and they make the other person feel totally overwhelmed. One of those two two things. And I find that if I want to change someone's mind and they're conversing with me, let's say I'm talking to someone at college or maybe a, a friend or something, and they start telling me about their ketogenic diet that they read about or whatever, and they're having a great time. What I always try to ask is, all right, you know, tell me about your experience. Tell me what benefits you've noticed. And I first and foremost try to establish some common ground where we're both appreciating the results that you've gotten and, and the the discipline you've demonstrated and these types of things. And then they'll be like, you know, what, what do you think about that? Do you think there's anything I should do differently? And then I'll interject with, well, you know, maybe you should eat more vegetables or whatever it happens to be. It don't, th This idea that you can just come online or, or go, go into someone's face and be like, this is stupid because this study and this study and this study, like, doesn't work it's one of the best not... sales trainers i ever had gary away from the podcast i work in a business development role he said that so many salespeople do what's called prescription without diagnosis and you'll yeah. enjoy that from a medical background because if for example somebody starts telling you about their keto diet and you then start prescribing them the correct approach in your eyes you've not actually diagnosed them because you don't understand how it fits into the lifestyle what happens yes. because there's probably a small percentage of people who the keto diet is actually quite good for but mm -hmm. It's probably not this individual, but until you hear the information about how they put it into their lives, what they've what they've experienced with it, you shouldn't really be prescribing or giving out a prescription of, well, actually, you should probably look at having a more calorie counted for diet with the following nutrient groups within it that will help you adhere yeah. to it on a longer term basis, instead of just kind of verbally throwing up and, and shouting things like calorie deficit at them glibly. Yeah, 100%. But I do think that the, all of those things we just touched on are like more broadly just trying to develop your communication skills and when people think about that they might think it's using bigger words or being clearer in your speech that's not necessarily it it's part of it but it's also those other soft skills that allow you to have an effective conversation with a person in terms of them feeling valued but then if you're in a sales role or you're in a convincing profession where you're trying to be elicit behavior change communication skills are absolutely just essential because otherwise you've got all this knowledge and you can't relay it relay it on to another person and that's 
the poor use of your knowledge. That's so right. And clearly you've worked very hard on your communication skills because it comes across really, really well. But I know that you initially as a teenager were coaching jump style of all things in terms of the kind of the dance style. Do you think you were born to coach or do you think you've nurtured it over time? Definitely nurtured over time, but I do, I do, I have always really enjoyed, um, I guess, passing things on to others, if you will, or teaching slash coaching in some way. Like I, even that jump style that time, loved it, really enjoyed it. Um, just, you know, it was, we were probably 16 at the time. So we had, you know, kids between maybe eight and 13 that were coming in, you know, they had seen the dance on YouTube and the scooter videos and things like that. And they wanted to learn. And I got a great kick out of that. You know, I loved it at the time. And uh, I've, I've always loved coaching since. And, and obviously, given that I've studied in healthcare, I, I, I enjoy that kind of interpersonal element of, of healthcare and medicine more broadly. It's not just the, the kind of science or the theory type of uh, or component of it, but also the the act of actually helping someone or relaying relaying on information so yeah I, I do i do get a lot of value from it was i born for it i'm not sure i i, I was born to enjoy it maybe uh, but it's definitely been nurtured over time is that how you've made quite a lot of your decisions then because you mentioned their healthcare you mentioned physio previously you have made some pivots yes. during your, your 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 life so far what's helped you make some of these big decisions and i guess to bring the listeners up to speed like you completed your, your you started exercise science and then changed to physio and you've made yeah. some big decisions along the way like what's allowing you a framework to to make these albeit quite life-altering decisions mm-hmm. this is I, I get asked this a lot because i think a lot of people really struggle with big decisions um and understandably so I, and i and i wonder sometimes do i make them a bit too easily because I, I, I suppose I initially went into exercise science, as you said, and I finished the first year of that, enjoyed it, but I was kind of studying that material already because I was just extremely interested in the gym and adaptations to exercise, nutrition, et cetera. So I thought, why not get a professional qualification? So that was the initial decision there was, well, wouldn't it be better to have to study something that you're not going to study anyway if you're going to pay for university and have a qualification. So yeah, that's what prompted me to do physiotherapy. And then the decision to go on and do medicine was actually a much more sporadic decision than I think a lot of people would probably think is normal, where like when I initially had the thought, it was it was almost between the thought was something I took seriously and the decision was executed within genuinely 24 hours. Like it was that that was just in my head, and that's where I was going then. Um, there had, of course, been some thought leading up to that. And I just I I just felt that at that point in my life, I had I was in a very, very lucky position where I have triage, so I have a source of income that doesn't require me to be anywhere during particular hours, and that it's flexible, I can work my own hours. And also it doesn't require me to be anywhere physically in terms of location. So I can be flexible in terms of where I'm based or where I'm placed, et cetera. So I was in a, a situation where the I had the the finances to be able to, you know, allocate that to studying medicine. I had the opportunity in terms of the time, um, <laughs> that's arguable to be able to study medicine. And then I had obviously interest in medicine that I had developed. And not only that, but also that the 
anything I gain from medicine would also benefit triage. So it's almost like this weird back and forth where what I do with triage allowed me to do medicine, but what I gain from medicine will also benefit triage. So I think I had a bit of a safety net there that made that decision easier. Like if I had just come out of physio and I had no job and I had no savings and I had no business and I had no alternate path, studying medicine would have been a much, much bigger call uh, going into debt and all that type of, of thing. But uh, I, I think that probably helped me. Yeah, I, th- I find it intriguing. And I always like to ask these questions of guests that have made decisions, which the general public are like, oh, right, okay, well, I, I, I'm kind of trying to figure out why you've done that and how you've done that. But when you get into the nitty gritty and you're like, well, actually, Gary had some financial reassurance in his head. Yeah. He had some safety nets. Um, he probably had the backing of his, his his family and his support system once 100%. he explained his under like his situation because a lot of the times people are like oh I can't make a decision because my family wouldn't understand and sometimes like well they definitely want the best for you and equally our parents tend to be more conservative with a small c yeah. about particular decisions because they want us to be in the most safe position possible and so fizzing sorry finishing a, a physio degree and going into a physio job would have been quite a safe choice for somebody who didn't have some of the other external factors which you've raised there Mm -hmm. and I think also I think your parents advice is incredibly useful because I think they're better at parents are better at thinking across a decade or multi-decade time frame in terms of what's best for you that's what they care about whereas when we're in our 20s in particular your early 20s three years feels like such a big time or five years or 10 years feels like a lifetime. So no, very few people are able to make decisions objectively with their plus 10 year self in mind or plus 20 year self in mind. And that's ultimately what really matters. So I think I was able to grip that maybe a little bit better than, than other people. So I was able to say as well, like, right, I'm in this position. I'm only sacrificing four years. Worst case scenario, you come out the other end and you're a qualified doctor. Things could be worse. So all those things that we mentioned, but also that ability to maybe think across what does this mean in a decade? What does this mean in two decades? Uh, that definitely helped me helped me quite a bit because that's always my vision is I don't worry too much about, you know, being happy or feeling good this year or next year. Like, and obviously it's it's important, but I don't, I don't, I'm not trying to maximize short-term pleasure. I'm trying to think, in 10 20 30 you love delayed gratification you just love delaying that gratification till you're ready to to enjoy it yeah i keep delaying it (laughs) it's a bit too long now no i i actually do enjoy my life to be fair i get i get both instant and delayed (laughs) yeah exactly but exactly that but just making sure that you're not reliant on always seeking like instant short-term pleasure pleasure and reward which i think we're all very guilty of in the way society is designed at the moment in the way that our kind of chimp brain embraces it as well one of the things that's probably striking a lot of people during this conversation that haven't like heard of you before gary is you you come across as wise for your age and you're talking there quite maturely about this longer term view you've had an interest in philosophy and psychology from a young age clearly and one of the phrases that has always stood out within your content is too easy or too ez where did this come from and what does it mean had too easy yeah so it's uh yeah basically uh, we for those listening like i often write the the number two and then easy the letters so too easy of course um i I actually it's it's kind of satire but also kind of serious in that you know it's satire because i'll often use it in terms of being talking about something that's clearly very difficult and challenging and just saying oh yeah it's too easy but also because i actually find it to be i guess a 
a bit of a summary of maybe a more complex psychological or, or philosophical approach where you know people people always talk about it you know if you can believe it you can achieve it or you can do anything you want whatever it happens to be um but for me like i do find that if i can go into things thinking that this is this is achievable this is going to be too easy like i do actually say it to myself like if i've got a difficult day ahead or i've got a an exam that i'm going into this is this is too easy it, it's like a a bit of reassurance for me but it's also true in some sense in that when we're encountering very challenging events we almost always think they're going to be much worse than they are exams are the classic example of that or another a subject that you're learning is a classic example of that because when you're if i'm going let's say i'm going into my final year of medicine now that's an incredibly challenging year but you can only take one day at a time so that's the way i try to think and i go into each day saying okay this is going to be too easy and if i break it down it doesn't seem overwhelming anymore whereas if i look at the year as a whole i look at uh, i don't know how many exams we have maybe 20 25 across the year or something like that like a reckless amount of content that we have to learn to move all over the country on placements and this type of thing totally overwhelming but if i can just think of okay what do i have to do tomorrow can i put that down on the to-do list that's too easy no problem and focus on that going into each day with that attitude these wins just begin to accumulate and accumulate and accumulate and suddenly you're looking back being like whoa how 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 did I get here? So it helps me to not get too caught up in my own head. And I have a, a kind of a, a personal a personal approach to stress management that I, I, I'm actually, I'm genuinely not sure like how applicable this is to other people because I talked to my girlfriend about it and I'm like, are you able to do this? And that is, I, I choose when to stress about things. So for example, if I have an exam, an assignment due on Monday, and I haven't started it yet, and it's Wednesday today, <clears throat> I genuinely won't feel any stress about that because I decide, I say, right, I'm going to stress about this on Saturday morning at 9 a.m. And then I wake up, and it's Saturday morning, and it's 9 a.m., and it's like, right, now let's do the assignment. And I genuinely don't actually feel any stress outside of the time that I've allotted to it. And I think maybe part of that is practice, part of it's maybe like personal psychological straight traits, uh, and part of it is just that it actually does work if you try to compartmentalize your life a little bit. Um, so that's something that helps me along with the kind of too easy mindset. There's an element of self-fulfilling prophecy to this. So yeah. if, for example, you looked at your final year of medicine and all the different hurdles and the content to consume and the different placements all across the country, and you told yourself, this is going to be stressful, that's the term you've just used there, yeah. then best believe it's probably going to be stressful and yeah. not just within the compartmentalized state that you've decided it's going to be, but instead you choose to use language too easy and it becomes yeah. a self-fulfilling prophecy. It's not 100%. too easy necessarily. That's slightly, slightly tongue in cheek, isn't it? We know that, yeah, but yeah. you're saying it's going to be too easy. In in fact, this is within my wheelhouse. This is within my capabilities. This is too easy. Gary will do this. This is going to happen. And the, the fascinating thing about the compartmentalization uh, stress piece is that you're deciding when that task is going to get done and when your systems and mind and hormones and everything are going to turn on to it. So for exactly. example, um, you're like on a really basic fitness example, you've got this horrible grilling leg session coming up. The stress for that should not be starting the day before. Yes. It does for some people though. It or does. you've yeah. got you've got uh the you've got this photo shoot booked for 10 weeks' time. The stress for that should not be starting like 10 weeks out. It should be just a kind of cumulative process of working towards it. And then maybe you get butterflies the 
the hours of the times before if i've got a big podcast interview with a guest i'm a little bit nervous either speaking to on an intellectual level or in terms of a status level my stress levels for it should be low and hopefully i can manage it through preparation research role play practice all these different factors that i can do in advance that prepare me for it i guess where people would maybe struggle and i think maybe what your girlfriend's fed back to you and asked you is if it's something that's like like looming like a deadline for an exam or a piece of coursework I guess the stress level will kick up because it it's in, it is inherently a stressful experience that you need to go through for a period yeah but the fact that you're able to be like not now not now there's other things to be stressed about first and when the time comes my stress levels will elevate to allow me to perform at a good level and again that's language like I would flip like if I'm nervous before a big podcast, I'm actually excited. It's going to give me energy to speak yeah. clearly, to be on my toes, to move quickly. And that's one of the reasons that for those that are um, listening, I stand for a lot of podcasts. I feel more agile and more able yeah. to, to, to be on my toes intellectually too. hundred percent. And yeah, my, my, my girlfriend will ask me sometimes, you know, um, Oh, did you start that assignment? Like, how are you feeling about that? And I will explicitly say, I'm not thinking about that now. Don't ask me about that. Now is not the time to be thinking about that. Uh, and I think I think a lot of people sometimes they almost I think they they do themselves dirty by making their life seem more stressful than it is. Like they like if I was sitting here telling you about how stressful my life is and all these things I have to do, and I I want to convince you that my life is stressful. I know that my life is stressful. I don't need to convince you. I don't want it to be in that dynamic of our conversation because that just gets me in a heightened state. And then I leave the podcast where we were just talking about how stressed I am feeling stressed. Whereas if we're just talking more casually, whatever, whatever we're talking about, then I can leave here being like, oh, that was an enjoyable conversation. And then decide that tomorrow I'll worry about whatever's on the to-do list. I find that a lot of people online before they have before they're act, they actually have that much going on, they kind of posture in such a way on their social media to say that they're so incredibly busy, so incredibly stressed, and they're almost spending more time worrying about the task that needs to be done than actually just doing the task. And I think part of that has maybe been forced upon me where I've got so much to do that if I was to actually spend loads of time stressing about it, I wouldn't be able to do it because I wouldn't have enough time. So <laughs> maybe there's a bit of that there too. But I You're definitely probably a bit of a you're probably a bit of a Ryan Holiday fan, I guess, from like stoicism and things like that. Um, I saw. Yeah, I would have read him years ago. I read his ego. Ego is the enemy, and I think I have his the Daily Stoic there somewhere as well. But uh, yeah, no, I, I I've enjoyed reading and listening to to Ryan I, speak as well. I saw one of his quotes recently, and it's pretty similar to what you just said there. It takes like the same level of energy and the input to do the thing as it does to think about doing the thing. Yeah. So that's like super basic language especially for somebody that studied all these roman emperors but it's it's incredibly it's incredibly true isn't it and sometimes we just need that really clear aphorism to be like well in the same way that like i could stress about this assignment or i could just do it when it's time to do it and like as humans we are very bad for like being worried about something in advance of it and like talking ourselves into how difficult it's going to be so we can use frameworks like too easy to be like actually like this will be this will be too easy when it's the time to do it but when it's time to do it of course you need to apply the effort rather than think so much about oh like should i do it in this particular way or in that particular way now don't get me wrong i'm a massive planner but when it comes to action like you just have to take it relentlessly 100 percent with you in terms of the content you've consumed i've named ryan holiday but also i know that you've um read a lot of nasim tilab's um content as well on anti-fragility 
How have you applied this with in your life? Well, firstly, for the viewers, here's Nassim Taleb's Incerto right behind me. <laughs> it's uh, that's like the I think the collector's edition or whatever the, the box set of the Incerto uh, that my girlfriend got me, and it's a beautiful set of books. But uh, yeah, so Taleb, I, I think he's a fantastic, a, a fantastic writer, a very a writer that I think you have to get used to. Uh, because I, I haven't found anyone that writes like him. It's almost like it's very chaotic and disjointed, but also when you put it all together, it makes sense. And uh, yeah, I'm a big fan of his work and I, I recommend it to a lot of people. From a, an anti-fragility perspective, um, I quite like that word. I like the way that Taleb talks about it because what he says is that, you know, a system that is fragile will break down in response to stressors. A, a system that is resilient will remain the same and push on through in the presence of stressors. And then a system that is anti-fragile does the opposite. So it actually adapts to the presence of stressors. And there are certain systems that are inherently in certain categories, uh, but there are many human traits that would be considered to be anti-fragile in nature. An easy example there being the our muscles. We train our muscles, um, we stimulate them, we apply stress, and they are anti-fragile in the nature that they respond positively to those stressors, obviously up to a point of uh, stimulus. Um, more broadly, I suppose you can apply this principle to, um, I guess, how you how you live your life generally. And that's kind of what I've taken from Taleb is that you want to prevent yourself well, basically, Taleb's overall philosophy, all his books are somewhat related to the philosophy of risk management. And if I think about the way I live my life and, you know, we've talked about wearing different hats and that type of thing, that would be an example of risk management in some sense, because I'm not maximizing one singular domain. I've got a couple of different domains that can sustain me so that if one of those was to fail tomorrow, I'm, you know, I'm at, at the very least resilient um, if not anti-fragile in the sense that I can push on with the others. Um, he talks about it obviously in relation to investment and finances as well, that if you know you put all your money in one stock and that stock drops, goodbye. Whereas if you're you know nicely diversified and um, you notice a catastrophic event in the markets coming up in advance, that you can potentially be anti-fragile there as well. So um, but more broad or more psychologically, I suppose, I think a lot of people have probably heard sayings or quotes that maybe demonstrate elements of um, anti-fragility and that I suppose that the classic one would be going back to Nietzsche's um, what doesn't kill you makes you, makes you stronger. There's a bit more context to that quote in the way that he wrote it. But um, overall, the idea there is that if you are, if you're receiving some sort of psychological stressors as a human being, you can actually get stronger and benefit uh, from that. Now, of course, again, context dependent, people do experience post-traumatic stress disorder, but there is also, you know, post-traumatic growth that people can experience too. So um, I think that having, having a, a kind of that baked into your mindset that you can get better in response to stress, again, can be a self-fulfilling prophecy because you don't view challenges such as exams or another year in college or uh, other life stressors as inherently degrading but rather something that builds you up and makes you a better person and i think that's something that's 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 both true and functional from a mindset perspective i'm a huge fan of when somebody takes such 
in-depth texts and then applies them across their life. And mm-hmm. anyone listening to the first 40 minutes of this conversation will have heard you apply little bits of that framework yeah. throughout in terms of how you speak. And I think that's vitally important because I think we see many people like flex about how many books they've read or how many self-development podcasts or whatever they listen to. But if you don't apply like even any of the lessons across it, then it's 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 kind of all it's all for nothing. It's like ego massage or like an intellectual masturbation, if you were to call it that. Whereas I think when you listen to you speak, many of the ideas that you've taken on board are now perforated throughout how you come across and how you live. And I love when you use a fitness example as well. I think many people can relate to that in terms of yeah. when I put stress on my muscles, they gain size. And it's funny how us fitness bros can actually have an interest in that particular area but of course intellectually be well read and able to apply these concepts and then bring it back to the the fitness bro example to really bring it to life as well which i I, I love too (laughs) exactly and and it's very true what you said that like i encounter many people who will talk about how many books they read but then you ask them what their favorite book is and you ask them to summarize it and they haven't really got a clue it was just more like more like a flex and and from my perspective i think that one of the the benefits of reading is that it actually makes you into the person that you are, that those ideas become part of you. And that's why you read the ideas of others. And you can see that Taleb in me, like there's, there's definitely many other authors who have are part of, of me, like Jordan Peterson's probably a very obvious one. You can see or hear when I speak that there are certain ideas that are very clearly influenced by him or Carl Jung or other people. Um, but that's ultimately, I think, the, the purpose of reading broadly take those ideas, be influenced by others as if they're in your life. Because, you know, people always say you're the sum of the five people you spend the most time with. But theoretically, the person you could spend the most time with could be someone that you just have read so much of their content um, and their ideas become part of you. And I think that if you're deliberate about that process, it can really help your your intellectual development, your social development. Uh, and that's, that's just a, a real privilege that we have access to so many books and not even books youtube videos these days um it's it's fantastic yeah we are swimming in information and it's interesting that you bring up the fact that somebody maybe can't articulate what they've learned from a particular book and you do lots of q a's i do a q a every 10 episodes in this podcast and they're always really popular because i try not let myself take over the podcast and it's about it's about the guest it's very important you do that so when you do a solo q a they can like right colin tell us a bit more about this and one of the questions was quite deep and i think you'll like this gary it was why do we share what we learn? And the second, the first was like to, um, was obviously to help people and support them. But the second for me is actually, it's a little bit of an act of um, self-care in that respect, where if you can articulate and distill down an idea that you know and put into terms that somebody else can understand and learn and get there quicker than you did, then it actually helps reinforce the lesson. So by you telling me all about Talib's content there and delving into some of the other self-development lessons that you've learned, even when you kind of recall from man search for meaning this the kind of high level details and the lessons it taught you it reinforces those lessons inside your head as well and by speaking them into existence not saying that we're manifesting it helps you to 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 bring those to life as well and put you in a position where you're like well actually that idea is now even more crystal clear in my head and it's reinforced what i read in that book by me being able to say it to a friend or a, a colleague that was asking me about it so i love that when you have this knowledge in your head and then you speak it out and you teach people it's almost doing a double favor it helps them but it's also helping you to reinforce and and bring on and bring home those lessons that you learned for the first time for a second time 100 percent. and i mean that's that's a 
it's kind of a classic as well in in educational circles um richard Feynman was a big fan of this is that if you like your your goal with trying to understand any subject should be to relay it on to someone else and particularly to be able to do so in simple basic terms that anyone can understand and and that's not always easy obviously but you know he's a, a pioneer in 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 physics um Richard Feynman and he was well able to articulate those ideas and he's got some excellent YouTube videos where he explains you know electromagnetism and all these things very simply and it's it's just fantastic and I find personally that that's one of the best ways to solidify my knowledge and in some ways answering the Q&As like you said and having to put out content on social media it's been one of the best learning exercises ever for me because I'm very uncomfortable like writing a post or answering a question if i you know don't know the answer as in unless i'm going to say i don't know like i'm not going to answer it authoritatively otherwise and very often if i'm getting answers i'll i'll look things up i'll double check or let's say before i use a quote i'll go back to the book and say was that definitely right and that's just been amazing for me in terms of solidifying my knowledge and causing me to sometimes debunk ideas that i might have held or, or leave ideas to the side that I might have held because when I went back to them I really I don't think that's true anymore and that's really important yeah holding them loosely so when you go back and revisit them you're actually like the current version of Gary and yeah August 22 when I'm recording this is different to the 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 person that maybe read that for the first time and like I've read books at different times in my life for the second time or the third time whatever and taken different things from them just based on yeah. on where you're, where you're at at that point now one of the most common questions that I get asked and you definitely get asked it is around time management in terms of like, how do you get everything done and <laughs> giving everything you accomplish? One of the phrases I say, I saw you say recently was there's no hack to do more work. Why is that? Yeah, there's no hack to do more work. I always come back to Parkinson's law here and I've been asked this and this is the question I get in every podcast, every Q and a that, that I do is, is how do you get so much done? I always say Parkinson's law, the time, uh, the time that it takes to co to commit uh, or to complete a task um, is equal to the time that's allocated, or that it will it will swell to fill the time that's allocated. Um, the idea there being that if you have four hours of work to do and you're going to be in the office for twelve hours, guess how long that four hours of work is going to take? It's going to take twelve hours. Uh, this is why deadlines work so well. Why when we're under pressure, we work so effectively we have a specific time that the task has to be done and suddenly you get it all done. This is why people have final year projects that they might've been working on for two years at university and they finish it in the last week or the last two weeks, they do 90% of the work um, because most things don't take that long. And when you're under time pressure, you can do a hell of a lot of work. And it's not that I always have specific deadlines as such, but rather that because I have a lot of things going on that are in different domains and um, there are some pillars. So for example, I had to be in the hospital this morning. I had to be here for the podcast with you. I had a meeting with Patty at four. So there were different pillars in my day around which I had to structure it then. So I had my meeting with Patty at four. I wanted to go out for um, a, a walk, a weighted walk for my exercise session today. So I said, right, I got home at half two. I need to go right now, get that done. So I'm back for four. Otherwise I won't get it done. So because there's that additional time pressure, there's far less of that kind of just buffer time between tasks for me where, you know, you come home from the office and you say, oh, I'm going to relax and, and go to the gym in a half an hour and a half an hour turns into an hour or an hour and a half or two hours. And then you've lost two hours. 
And during that two hours, had you had other things to do, those things would have gotten done. So it's just about making the most of the time that's available and somewhat being forced to make the most uh, of that time too. So if I've got you know 10 tasks to do and I only have 10 hours, well, they have to, they have to get done, that's it. Um, so I, I don't really think there's that much else to it. Like there definitely are some strategies that I implement in terms of being deliberate with planning when I'll do particular things. Um, the stress comment that I mentioned previously about deciding when I'll stress about things. Um, and, and yeah, I think, I think that's most of it along with the fact that I don't really do anything that, that doesn't contribute to those tasks getting done other than training. You know, I'm not sitting down watching Netflix for four hours or, you know, dilly dallying on my phone for two hours on the couch. It just doesn't really happen. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm very, very similar. And some people find it quite difficult to hear that message in terms of like, oh, I, I don't massively procrastinate. Like there's certain things I procrastinate on. Yeah, and I think I think you and I share this quality when I've heard you speak about this before, but my type of procrastination tends to differ. So I'd be interested, like, what does procrastination look like for Gary McGowan? Yeah, so I, I that that's actually something I should have mentioned is that, um, and I'm glad you've done your research, because I, I, I did talk about this before where I talked about procrastination. And I said that procrastination can actually be um, of benefit and that you can yield it to your benefit. And my life is structured in such a way that procrastination can actually be used for positive effects. Uh, so if I'm procrastinating on doing my triage work, very often I might do like some medicine, multiple choice questions, or if I'm procrastinating on a medical assignment that I do, I might be doing triage work instead or, or something along those lines. So because there's other things that at the moment have less friction between me and that task, that feels like procrastination to me, but it's still pr productive and taking something off my to-do list. So when I, what I tell people is that when you think of procrastination, what, you, what you've got is a layer of friction between you and the task that's currently too great for you to overcome it, or at least that's how it feels to you. There are multiple other domains uh, or directions in which there is less friction. And that could be what most people do is just, you know, scroll on their phone or, or watch TV or something like that. But it could just as easily be reading a book or working on something else because there is less friction in that, in that direction. There mightn't be less friction than, for example, watching the TV, but it's enough. You can overcome that bit of friction now. And I think that's a good way of thinking about it. Yeah, it's like different levels of procrastination. There's like the really cheap, instantly rewarding easily accessible procrastination of the dopamine from her phone or or yeah. um or, or or watching something that feels reassuring or there's reading or answering these particular emails or doing something that's still on the to-do list but albeit feels easier within that moment yeah and uh, i spoke to Neriel on the podcast who wrote indistractable and he is very big on the fact that when we procrastinate or don't do things that we said we're going to do and get distracted it's to escape discomfort and the discomfort is the layer of friction between ourselves and the task. And I recognized after reading his book and then particularly after interviewing him again, by speaking it into existence, I, I reinforced the lessons when I'm writing like a difficult proposal or email and work, I'll go like stop and like reply to a LinkedIn message. I'll set, I'll post on yeah. LinkedIn. I will reply to an internal email to a supplier that's going to help me out with a particular deal because it's easier. I'm escaping this discomfort. I'm running away from the fact that the words won't come immediately to my fingers to write this particular email where I'm trying to land like a price increase or something like that. Mm -hmm. And I'll go and do something which is still work, 
but it's easier war level work and sometimes like, i've definitely learned i need to sit with that discomfort and just be like fucking grip in call and like and do the work but my level of procrastination from it is at least not reaching for instagram or going to the kitchen and uh, eating or trying to escape from it in that sense at least it's like a it's it's a form of procrastination which i don't like but it's at least not a form of procrastination that's destructive, which I think a lot of people go immediately to. So like the levels to the procrastination piece is fascinating for me to hear somebody else articulate it that is maybe wired in a slightly similar way to me where I don't like to feel like I'm not being productive in some sense. A hundred percent. And I think, I think to be fair, like in, in, in your work, let's say where you've got a couple of different tasks that could be considered to be productive or, or my work very similar I think it's a little bit easier for us. It's difficult for some people. Maybe like I think the the college student who has one assignment to do is the classic example because for college students with one assignment, it's either assignment or you know Netflix, TV, drinking, smoking weed. Going the rep, yeah. <laughs> there's no there's no other productive thing that they're doing other than that that one assignment. So what I'll often tell people to do then is like there's generally something to do with that assignment that is that has the largest friction. So you break it down. And I often uh, do this if I have an assignment to do, I take everything we've talked about and I put it on a more micro level. So for example, it might be that um, there's this one section that I just, I can't approach now. There's just too much friction. Let's say you're writing up a paper or something, but you might be able to write up some of the method sections. Or if you don't want to write the whole you know, paragraph, take a few notes and bullet points and even if it's just five minutes, because I'll often do that at nighttime in particular, if there was something I know I procrastinated on, what I'll do is I'll take five minutes at the end of the day and I'll do the most minuscule, you know, start to that task, write down four bullet points and then go to bed. And then in the next morning, wake up and it's like, oh, at least it started. At You've least given yourself a head start. I love, I love that. Taken. I've yeah. heard a lot of authors say that they'll sometimes stop mid-sentence when they're writing a book so that yeah. when they come back to it, they finish that sentence and then you've generated momentum to go from there. Equally, one of my favorite productivity things is the two minute rule where if I'm doing a task and I know it would only take two minutes, just do it now. Like um, wash the dishes after, after you have dinner, don't just leave them on the table because like if you just go through and get it out of the way now, it's done. And then you can go on to a task that's more important or higher leverage or, 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 or better. Equally, you can sometimes end up in like a spinning like vortex of like small shitty tasks, like yeah. answering particular emails if you do the two minute rule. But I just like to feel like I'm doing things to free up greater freedom for Colin in the future. Of course, I think you and I pe could potentially end up delaying the gratification too long at times. I think that's maybe how we're uh, <laughs> predispositioned yeah, in that we're sense. we're probably wired in that direction. But uh, that's a good point about like, you know, household chores, because that's actually something I'm trying to 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 work on at the moment is like that like you say that two minute rule like if it can be done now just do it now um because what happens with me very often is let's say i let a few of those things pile up to the point where maybe there's an hour of household chores to be to be done an hour not a big deal right not a big deal but if i've got a load of stuff going on then doing that hour of chores genuinely seems just like too much i'm like i genuinely don't have an hour um, and then it becomes an hour and a half and then it becomes two hours and then it's three weeks later and you have to do all this catch up around the house so that's something i'm actually trying to prioritize like it's very at the front of my mind at the moment is if something is done or if something is there to be done 
do it right now. You know, don't don't leave that which can be done today until tomorrow. Um, Once it's done, I, it frees up the bandwidth that you and I are yeah. stretched on. And most people listening to this are busy people. Yeah. If you free up the bandwidth by doing the thing now, then you move forward and we, we can go back to that Ryan Holiday to- quote. It takes just as much time and energy and effort to think about doing the thing as it does to do the thing. So sometimes you just need to right, crack on out the way and then you free up yourself to do something else. You come from Ireland, Gary, and I come from Glasgow in Scotland. And I think there's some commonalities between the two nations in particular. And sometimes people could be uncomfortable when people start to pursue something different or even just self-betterment. And you're somebody that's indexed really hard on self-development and the kind of people that are playing this through their car speaker or their AirPods just now are the kind of people that are pursuing self-betterment as well. But they can sometimes come up against friction. And one of the main areas that I've noticed friction, and I believe you have as well, is when you try and work on the skill of speaking well and not having too strong of an accent, you can sometimes be seen as like patronizing or like leaving your your roots behind. Because while you can definitely hear that I'm Scottish, you can definitely hear that you're Irish, you and I are not massively regional speakers in that sense. And some people can get a bit uncomfortable with that. And I know people come up against barriers in that sense. How do you strike the balance between pursuing self-betterment and improvement and speaking well and not being like patronizing or looking down upon your peers? Yes, my, my parents even point this out. They'll, they'll say, you've got a bit of an American twang in those videos that you're doing. Um, but, you know, it's 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 mostly lighthearted. I have had a few, um, you know, backhanded comments in terms of maybe I've, I've heard of people talking about me or on some of those, you know, anonymous kind of messaging forums and stuff, people saying that um, I'm... Uh, whatever what did they say I, I have a superiority complex and all this sort of thing and you know he thinks he's better than everyone and he speaks like he's an american and whatever but to be honest i think that um i think there's a few different uh reasons why it is important to be clearly spoken number one if i'm with uh my friends at home in Kerry, my Kerry accent really starts to get strong and i start to speak really fast and that's just not great experience for someone that's trying to listen to me what I also am cognizant of always when putting out content is that I've actually got one one client currently who's deaf. I've got a number of other clients uh, or followers who are deaf, and I've you know spoken to them in the DMs about this. That you know ca- having captions on actually helps them a lot. And if I'm using my normal carry accent and speaking fast, those captions are picking up all sorts of wild things. So that's one of the reasons why I um, try to speak clearly and will really try to you know, pronounce certain parts of a word so that it's picked up by any captioning devices. Um, And also just appreciating that some people are listening from other countries. And if I'm using, you know, a a specific, if I'm speaking in a particular way, like you you listen to some people from um, Glasgow or Scotland or Northern Ireland as well, speaking or some parts of rural Kerry where I'm from, most people won't be able to understand them if they're from there, (laughs) you know, it's very difficult. So all those things have influenced, um, my, I guess, somewhat conscious, somewhat subconscious decision to try to be very clear in the way that I speak. Um, so yeah, all of those things, I guess, have, have influenced it. Uh, I've definitely made a conscious effort to speak better. Um, gener- generally, if I'm giving a presentation or something, I'll try to maybe rehearse in advance. I won't have notes, but I want to make sure that I know some of the words that I'll use, that I'll know some of the transitions between sentences and slides, et cetera. And I think all of those things help with you know effective communication. Personally, I, I don't really ever get too bothered about um, what 
people might think of me locally or or something or maybe some people won't won't like me of course it it bothers everyone and you know there's certain things people could say that i'd think oh god that one hurts because i i think there might be a bit of truth there but that's okay with it but it's okay with me because like i am 100 1000 percent a harsher critic of myself than anyone could ever be so i've dealt with that um and and to be honest i think what you realize is that although you get a bit of a slagging when you try to maybe go on this self-betterment path as you say whether it's related to how you speak or any other number of attributes you get a bit of slagging but you know most of your real friends will still be there your family will still be there most people that actually care about you and that you care about want to see you do well even if there's an initial you know bit of slagging and maybe they feel a bit insecure themselves that's fine because you know ultimately your real friends do last and that's something i've always found is that i don't i don't pretend to my friends to be anything that i'm not i think some people do and this gets them in a bit of trouble when they're on the self-betterment path because online let's say their social media persona is one thing um and then in in real life they still try to be the guy that their their boys thought they were when he was 16 i think we'll both met people like that who put on a facade but i think when it comes to like trying to be more articulate and well-spoken and more easily understood and it's it's a very low-hanging fruit to do that and peterson who we both referenced throughout this conversation uh, is very big on being able to write and speak and it's a bit of a superpower and in this world where you can create written or or video or, or audio content why not have that as a skill? And equally in my in my day job, Gary, being known as a good presenter who can present to clients from different parts of England, different parts of Wales, different parts of the continent in, in Europe and be well known as like, oh, he's the Scottish guy, but they they, they can understand me. It's It's been very beneficial for me. And if I look at the podcast demographics, as I'm sure you will with your demographics on Instagram or whatever, not everyone comes from this tiny little region that we that we potentially live in to start with. Yes, absolutely. And and I've had that exact same experience, uh, particularly since uh, starting medicine. Like if you're if you're presenting to someone in a hospital, you look at the you go into any hospital and you'll see that there's a there's people from all parts of the world working as doctors like they're not just Irish doctors. And I've had experiences like that where I was, you know, taught anatomy at one point by this, you know, surgeon who was an excellent surgeon, extremely competent unbelievable knowledge of anatomy but i couldn't understand him you know because you know he's i I don't know where he was from but he was from another country and his accent was difficult for me to understand and the speed at which he spoke was difficult for me to understand so as a result i didn't benefit from that and you know i wouldn't go back to to him for help just for that reason because it's just not an easy transaction there Um, and it's very similar if i was to use my full Kerry accent and speak you know, super uh, quickly, like I would if I was with some of the boys at home, then, you know, they'd miss out on things that I was saying too. So uh, it, it is a superpower. I think the ability to speak clearly and articulate yourself is a superpower that's transferable to many different domains. And that's been one of my probably biggest strengths throughout university is anytime I give a presentation, it always leaves a very, you know, positive impression, or at least the vast majority of the time. And I'm okay saying that because it's reflected in the grades and reflected in the feedback I've been given. And it's not anything inherent to me. It's it maybe there's part of it, but I've worked on that over and over and over again. And I always say to people, if you're if you're shy at speaking, 
you need to speak more. Or if you're bad at speaking, you need to speak more. If you're too shy to go on social media and post videos, just start doing it. A year down the line, it won't matter. You won't even realize why you were shy. 100%. And that's like seeking change and betterment from like a, a mental and a, a skill level perspective. We were laughing before we hit record about seeking change from a, a physical perspective. Um, has fat loss become like a, a gateway to the alt-right, Gary? <laughs> yeah, I think it has. Unfortunately, there's a a lot of guys, you know, joining the the KKK and the neo Nazis as a result of starting German volume training these days. <laughs> no, in all seriousness, um, what what you're what you're getting at here is the idea that the pursuit of maybe self improvement or the adoption of personal responsibility for one's own life has become sort of intertwined with um the political right wing and of course there are some there are some there are personality traits um that correlate with political beliefs and that would then correlate with some of these you know personal beliefs about one's psychological approach to life i guess you could say but i think these are not absolutely not right wing beliefs to be to take personal responsibility or or whatever or to just be you know motivated and disciplined in your life um they are intertwined in 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 some cases but you know it's not something i would take very seriously unfortunately it seems like a lot of people do think that these days that you know the pursuit of you know fat loss or improvement there's a lot of just really strange beliefs that people hold saying that you know if you try to lose fat that is inherently fat phobic because you're deciding that the per that the another person that is fat like you were is of less value but that's not what you're saying you're just saying that there is some sort of hierarchy here um and if you can't acknowledge that there's some sort of hierarchy in terms of being leaner generally in most cases on average in the population being better than being fatter then you're totally deluded from my perspective because i don't think any serious person any average lay person on the street would turn around and say oh it's actually better to be fatter um so there is a, a an implicit hierarchy there in terms of one's beliefs that people are scared to make explicit but and i think that's because they think that's going to make or create extra weight stigma or it makes them feel like um maybe it's an inherently you know, inherently stigmatizing is fine I, I don't think that's the case because i think i work with a lot of people towards their fat loss goals and regardless of where someone starts regardless of how fit or unfit someone is they're all going to get treated with the same level of compassion and respect because from my perspective you know all people at base are of equal value um but that doesn't mean that we all live ways that are of equal merit or of equal virtue and we can all move in that direction i think there are better and worse ways to live i think that you have to kind of believe that unless you're going to be just be total anarchist there are better and worse ways to live there are better and worse ways to exist or perform or look and we can't per, per, we can't achieve the best in all of those domains but it doesn't mean just because we don't we mightn't get to the north pole doesn't mean we don't need to know where north and south is if you get what i mean yeah exactly exactly that and like geography is a very like binary subject but we appear to be blurring the lines between so many different distinctions nowadays and i find it fascinating that during the kind of last couple of years where there has been a lot of challenges to like people's freedoms and how they felt about particular restrictions and things that have gone on and uh, mandates or whatever else kind of people within the fitness community being quite 
like independent and about and able to like take personal responsibility has almost been deemed like a negative thing during this period and i find it very interesting how some of the language has changed around being mindful about your health to like protect a albeit growing subsection of the population that are not looking after themselves from that perspective and making them feel comfortable has been like the number one goal of how language has been treated nowadays when it comes to things like fat loss and weight loss and i think fit shaming if anything is like quite a common new occurrence than fat shaming like when i was at school fat shaming would absolutely been a thing like you would have been bullied for being overweight but i i from the um when i've when i've coached uh, kids groups at summer camps and things like that in previous jobs like it's much more the other way where kids are almost mocked for being like too active or like being too into sports nowadays it's just a bizarre setup that we've kind of enabled within the the next generation that are coming through yeah i always wonder how 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 it influences the next generation but i definitely see it in in the the fitness world because when i talk about these things it always clicks with people they're like oh my god like i've been i I think particularly young trainers who have genuinely good intentions and are just really nice people sometimes people can be too nice for their own good and i know a lot of people like this who are actually scared to talk about fat loss or to share their clients transformations and these types of things because they know that you know some people that follow them will attack them and say oh but you know diets don't really work and you're putting that person at risk of an eating disorder and all these types of things and um i I think it is those people that are maybe too nice for their own good that end up allowing their language to go in the direction of you know things that they mightn't actually believe in and that that's that's why that's why the idea of being um a nice person and the idea of being a good person aren't necessarily the same thing because if you're aiming at if you're aiming at the good again you can see peterson's influence here if you're aiming at the good you have to be you know dangerous in some sense or dangerous but disciplined if you will um and you have to be willing to at least stand up for your beliefs and say no when you feel others are crossing the line and uh, i think there's virtue in that and i think in this case a lot of people are, allow their language to go in the direction of people who they don't actually believe with or they don't actually you know believe or whether it's putting your i don't know your your pronouns in bio or talking about your privilege or whatever maybe you genuinely support these things absolutely more power to you but a lot of people don't a lot of people just do these things as almost signals to the group and it's for an easy life as well it's for an easy yeah. life because by not doing these things you're much more likely to be shouted down and harassed and called a bigot and some of the people that i know who shout these things and get so angry are among the most prejudiced people in terms of their like the way always, that they, be, they behave and i find it fascinating like look at um adele's a really good example when she went through her weight loss yeah so many people like like attacked her for leaving the group and the demographic that she was primarily associated with growing up as being the, the lady that was quite overweight but had a really good voice and was really talented and she could be a, a leading pop star despite the fact she was overweight but when she lost the weight they were like well actually i'm not comfortable with that because i put you in that box as somebody that was like an, uh, an ally or a, a supporter of overweight people and you're like well actually she's she's healthier now she's going to live longer maybe she can contribute even more to the music scene and support people with her from her, her talent by being healthier and maybe she feels better like who, who are you to tell her how, how how to feel at that point and i think like fit shaming when it comes to that kind of thing when you leave the group or the demographic that people would kind of box you into or your identity which we spoke about at the very start of this discussion it makes other people feel super uncomfortable and then you become an enemy of the 
the the the, the kind of the politically correct elite that we're we're moving towards. Hundred percent, and I mean, like that's that circles right back to what we said at the beginning, you know, about about the identity, and you see this all the time these days, particularly on social media, because people people don't often really know what they're promoting or what they're supporting but will do so anyway as a signal to other people this happens both on the right and on the left it's it's not just um in one direction um but uh, what i see more often in at least in in medicine because i suppose doctors and people in healthcare more generally tend to you know be more left-wing of course um you know I'll, I'll see you know doctors with the the pronouns in bio and the standard the standards you know um arsenal where they've got the ukraine flag you know they've got hashtag blm uh, all, all these things that are just almost just reproducible like if i see that i can predict all of your beliefs about every topic <laughs> like, and that's such a dangerous position to be in and i was i received a bit of pressure that time around um the death of george george floyd because we had you know we schedule our posts in advance very often at triage and we had a post that went out on that day and people got on to me and said you know you need to take that down you need to post a black square and all this sort of stuff and i was like why exactly can you explain to me why i'm supposed to do this and i wasn't you know really given any great answer to be honest um and it was just again it was just a, a signal and you know i'm not saying that you're a bad person if you did that but rather that you being just going along with signals in that way signaling to other people without having knowledge of actually what you stand for i think that's actually very dangerous because in this case all right maybe not so dangerous someone shares a ukraine flag all right fair enough whatever um but if you're if you if you go in that direction or in any direction very easily you get pulled towards very dangerous ideas in some cases you see that on in in right wingers um on the far right as well where people will play around with certain ideas and it's funny and it's banter um and then suddenly you have one of these guys that takes it too seriously and goes and shoots up a school and it's like holy shit what did he do um yeah. and and again it's it's just one example of people wanting to adhere to a particular set of beliefs impress the others conform get... to the tribe gary exactly fit in with whatever the ideology is at that point in time and i, I, I think absolutely. that's absolutely right and equally like when you see what i would call virtue signaling which is the the concept yeah. which we're discussing just now how many people keep up the virtue from the initial signal so how many people who posted the black square are still actively involved in anti-racism how many people who share the ukraine flag are actually supporting refugees coming across from ukraine to house them or support them or anything like that and it's 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 a cheap signal to throw up a social media post at a point in time where other people are doing it and that's not to call people out but equally i think like i don't i've got quite a disagreeable personality i've done some yeah, of the yeah, yeah. personality testing and i would much rather be actively supportive of a cause that i truly believe in than just jump on the next bandwagon and lend very low level like low impact support a hundred percent and i mean like that's that's always my perspective is I, I try not to share signals that I think are cheap or signals that get me out of doing something in the real world. So I would always be of the opinion, you know, that like do real charity work, give your time up, actually do something that's meaningful in the world rather than just, you know, signaling oh, thoughts and prayers. Okay. <laughs> what, what now? <laughs> like, um, People find so that I very difficult though, Gary. And like, 
you would potentially get called out that you hadn't put up the Ukraine flag or you hadn't supported a particular movement in some sense. But I know that like you've done like things like the 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 Brown Chernobyl project, or you've mm-hmm. actively given up time and like made significant um like sacrifices from that perspective. And some of the people that I know that get, kind of get called out for not being like supportive or or like in somebody's eyes charitable actually are doing a lot of charity work either behind the scenes or actively and you're like oh well like their contribution if you are looking at it from a a, a binary sense is greater than yeah. your sharing of an instagram story that felt good in that moment because you were part of the group of people that were trying to feel virtuous about themselves yeah 100 percent. it's just it's it's just in group signaling is is what it is um and i think that you should try at the very least, you might come to the conclusion that it is worth it and that it's it's a good thing and that you do it all from a good, genuine, altruistic place if that exists. But I think that in any case where you're signaling, just question your motives and ask yourself, is this genuinely something I believe? Is it genuinely something I understand? Like, for example, like the phrase Black Lives Matter is absolutely innocuous and something that no one would actually disagree with like yes obviously like okay there might be some you know freaks out there that actually do disagree with that but everyone agree most people agree with that the question is you know to what to to what extent do you agree with the the motives and the processes of that organization and and i know loads of people that just share black lives matter all these different posts and stuff and they don't know who's behind the organization. They don't know where's the where the funding is going. They don't know what they actually stand for, what they're fighting for, etc. And I just think that's incredibly dangerous because, uh, like, if if it was on, let's say the if it was right wingers that were doing this type of thing and they were, I don't know, fundraising for some very disagreeable cause that they didn't like and people didn't look into it and they didn't consider um, what it was actually for, then that would clearly be a, a travesty. And uh, I think there, there were examples that emerged from that, that maybe the funding wasn't going to the best places and those types of things. But uh, but yeah, like, again, I'm not saying I'm anti- People were swept along. Yeah, people, yeah, were, people, people, people were, were swept, swept along because they're too nice and they're not disagreeable like you and me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah 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 but I, I think you have a tremendous level of self-awareness and I certainly think in the last two and a half years particularly from doing the podcast and uh, I've done quite a lot of journaling as well which if you said to Colin like three four years ago you're going to be journaling I'd be like you've absolutely lost the plot but yeah. I've certainly found that like going into myself and understanding a bit more about how I'm wired has made me much more able to articulate things and I'm actually I'm a much better more helpful person to be around because I understand how I'm wired and I can maybe help others like there's a there's a great phrase like a rising tide raises all ships so if Mm -hmm. i can perform at my best and look after myself to my best then i take other people with me i certainly think that that's something that that you are clearly doing in 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 your life gary and i guess to to kind of to kind of bring us home one of the questions that i I like to ask some i guess particularly somebody that's as studious and um keen to like improve themselves as you what's one thing that you still feel you're you're constantly learning even now constantly learning um let me think. I think, I think what I probably what I'm constantly learning is where what what the sweet spot is for me between work and play. I guess you could say more work and play, but also maybe. Uh, time with myself and time in my own head uh, is another element of that because I definitely swing in the direction almost always of working too much and always wanting to do too much that's my tendency 
So I've worked very hard on trying to pull that back a bit. And I think one of the things I've I've learned and have and continue to learn is that, like for me at least, it's not it's not the work in the play. Like if I finish work and I don't know, I I don't really want to go and do loads of activities or spend lots of time with different people or, like I I I enjoy some of that, but I I I think one of my needs is is some of that time, alone, maybe out for a, a long walk, processing my thoughts or reading a book that maybe causes me to consider you know, certain elements of my own life or whatever it happens to be just some part of my day or my life my week that is silent or silent with maybe some pleasant thoughts or just you know floating thoughts if you will where I can be a bit more free in my own head I think that's one of the things I've learned that that I need a little bit more of and and some play as well for sure but uh yeah that's for me is is learning where that sweet spot lies and when did you start to explore that then, Gary? Because prominently enough at the time of recording, you shared a post today about a time that five, six years ago that you mm-hmm. took it too far and like you had adverse reactions with you, your eye bleeding and you'd had nosebleeds before from kind of pushing too far. When did you start to actively explore that I need to learn about this? And of course, you're still learning, but when was it a, a realization that, right, okay, now it's time to work on this? Yeah, well, I've always I've always at least had the the awareness that you know, I, I probably tilted in the direction of, of working too hard. Um, I knew I had that tendency, but, and I always, you know, I would speak to clients about this all the time where I know theoretically that, you know, you need time to relax or you need time to play and enjoy yourself to make this a sustainable lifestyle. Like I know that theoretically, but I think it's probably only in, maybe only in the last few months, really actually where, where that last piece has actually come into the puzzle where I've said, where I've realized that, you know, what I I feel much more put together, much more aligned, if you will, when I have that time to, you know, just, just be alone, both physically and, and, and mentally as well. Um, I, I think that's probably more so in the last few months, I think over the last two years, maybe has been more so thinking about taking more time off and doing more things that weren't work but it's just that last piece where I, I think that need for introspection and, and isolation is it, that's something I, is very very new I would say even though I used to do it a lot before especially when I was younger but but now it, it feels a bit more prominent when you're so busy it's kind of hard to um like find that time but finding that time enables you to be better during the periods when you're meant to be doing the things that you decide that you're going to do absolutely yeah um interesting just as a, an aside uh, do you remember lex griffin he was like the first gymshark athlete the guy with the beard oh, yes 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 um i met lex through a, a shoot that i did for slater menswear talking about men's mental health and he told me that one of the things that he does and at the time again i would have thought like this is like a bit different like he he like likes grounding but he also likes like just walking in nature no music no phone and because yeah. he's somebody that spends time creating content all the time on his phone or his camera it's it's like so revolutionary to not have anything in your ears or anything in your hand or anything stimulating you. Yeah. So he comes back from these walks and he's like, wow, well, I'm going to do a video on this, this, this. I'm going to do all these different things because he's had like time to not have any input. So his brain is just like working in a way that's like so much more helpful. And I imagine like people like you and I we were speaking about tensing towards like doing too much work and like trying to fit too much in. When you have those times where there's nothing happening, it almost like revitalizes you for the times when it's time to go. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and I, I think that's, that's, that, that's very much aligned with my own experience. The walk in nature is, is the, the pinnacle example of like, that's, 
that that if I can walk in nature on my own in silence like that that definitely makes me feel very good psychologically and and I like I like Lex I actually kind of forgot he had ex he existed because he's one of the OGs but I went back and watched one of his videos there maybe if, just a few months ago because he popped into my head um, but yeah I always found him to be a uh, a very nice guy at least it seems so and um i think i i really i really like the fact that he was always very unique and seems to very much be his own person as opposed to just trying to adhere to what other fitness influencers do and, and i always have respect for people who do that you've nailed that and we were mentioning before like people being their authentic selves and like not necessarily having like a facade online and like trying to self-development online but then being yeah. what they are or being totally different offline he is exactly as you would expecting to be which is very refreshing to yeah, to experience that. that and i yeah. and i certainly think you are as well gary because when you go for over an hour in a podcast no nothing ends up hidden does it it all it all it all, it all comes out because we can't act for, for for longer than that but gary people have loved this conversation as much as i have i'm sure and they'll want to continue the conversation with you where should they head towards yeah so it's probably the best places are uh, at skinny gaz or at triage method on instagram my personal page is skinny gaz my business page along with my colleagues is at triage method um or you can email me at gary at triage method.com if you you know if you don't have instagram or you want to send me a longer message that's perfectly fine always happy for for anyone to email so amazing gary those will be linked in the show notes guys thank you very much for joining us as always and i'll be back to speak to you all again very very soon